two readings this morning. The Old Testament reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. These are the commandments, decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you have that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children and their children after them, may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commandments that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And our New Testament reading is from Luke, chapter 10, from verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man... He passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. <clears throat> he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took, uh, he, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The experts in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told them, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Sam, if I haven't met you before. It's good to see lots of people here this morning. Um, I've been a member of this church for about two and a half years now, um, and it's a real pleasure to be able to open the Bible together with you this morning. So I'm going to pray for us as we start. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story of Jesus on the road, which we know so well. Um, and I pray that as we hear your words to us through scripture this morning, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, challenge us, 
And I pray that we would be not just hearers of the word, but also doers of your word. And please strengthen us to obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're on the road with Jesus. We're spending 10 weeks at our church traveling with this teacher from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's on a journey. Um, Lots of you have also been on journeys recently. I know Wayne has come back from traveling all over the Mediterranean, the Austin's exotic Perth. Um, Melanie and I have been on a journey too. We were in Switzerland recently visiting Melanie's family. And while it wasn't really a road trip holiday, we did do about 3,000 kilometers in the car over three weeks, driving all over the place to visit various different family and friends, which was great. And there were a few new experiences for me doing all this driving in a new country, obviously driving on the other side of the road, the steering wheels on the other side of the car, all those kind of things are a bit stressful. But probably the most stressful thing uh, was one day when we were in a very mountainous area in the southern part of Switzerland in the Alps. Some of you will know there's lots of tunnels in Switzerland. If you've ever been there, you'll see there's tunnels everywhere. They all also have names, which I thought was weird. All the tunnels have got their own name. Um, Probably shows you what Swiss people value. Anyway, so we were driving down this long valley. It was really windy, and we were going further and further into the depths of the valley. And at the end of the valley... There was, the, the road ended, and there was a tunnel. And what you were supposed to do is drive your car onto a train, which takes you through the heart of the mountain, and then there's a highway on the other side, you drive off the train and you go. It's, I thought it was really exciting. Melanie was like, oh, it's completely normal, but I was like, wow, this is great. So we, we got to this place where we wanted to go. We got to the end of the highway where the tunnel started, and um, The thing that you need to know about this tunnel is that there are actually two trains at this place we're going. There's one that just takes you straight to the other side of the mountain to a place called Goppenstein, which is where we wanted to go. It's not that far. But there's another tunnel that takes you to Italy. (laughs) These kind of things happen in Europe. Um, So we, thankfully, Switzerland is a very ordered country. There's clear signs and lines where you should go. So we got in the line for Goppenstein, um, and we waited. And just as we were driving onto the train, the cars in front of us started filtering out into other new lanes. And I was really confused. I didn't know what was happening. We saw a sign for Goppenstein over there, and the car in front of us was moving over here, and the other one was going over there, and we were just sort of freaking out, probably shouting at each other. And before we knew it, we were on a train. They're single-file trains. We probably had 20 or 30 cars behind us. There was no way we could get off. And we didn't know whether the train we were on would take us to Goppenstein or to Italy. We had no idea. Now, our journey with Jesus doesn't involve trains or tunnels, but it is going to take us to unexpected and surprising destinations. Today's passage will be so familiar to so many of us. And that's actually one of the real challenges that we face when we read it. But we're going to try and listen to this story today through the ears of the people who first heard it. And for them, this passage was shocking. It was surprising. They thought they knew where they were going with Jesus, only to end up somewhere completely different. So we're going to look at this passage through the lens of three characters, the lawyer, the religious leaders, and then the Samaritan to try and get to the heart of what it means to follow Jesus on the road. 
So we're going to start with the lawyer, verse 25. If you've got a Bible, keep it open. Have a look there. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here is our lawyer. He's an expert in the law, not mergers and acquisitions, not intellectual property. He's an expert in the Torah, the Jewish law. He knows those first five books of the Bible inside out, back to front. And he wants Jesus to tell him what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Now, whether that's a genuine question or not, we don't really know. We know that there were a lot of other lawyers like this one in the Gospels whose only intention was to trap Jesus. They wanted to check his theology. They wanted to see if he was orthodox, to see if he followed the right traditions and interpretations of the law, and to see if they could catch him out. But Jesus isn't a fool. He goes straight back to that lawyer and he says, mate, you're the expert in the law. You're the lawyer, so you tell me. What does the law say? Answer your own question. And this is where the lawyer really shows his insight and his training, because the answer that he gives is absolutely bang on. Verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Part of that's from the passage we heard read out, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love God and love your neighbor. It's the heart of the law. And Jesus says, exactly. If you do that, if you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you will live forever. You will inherit eternal life. But I wonder if you noticed the last part of Jesus' response to the lawyer. It's really important. He says, do this and you will live. You've got to do it. Now, I want to empathize with our, our lawyer at this point. I can really see myself in him, and I wonder if some of you can too. He knows the law inside out. He can talk about it and debate it. He can discuss minor points of doctrine and theology. But when it comes to actually doing it, not just talking about it, but doing it, that's a different story. And the lawyer's next question really betrays that this is his problem. Verse 29, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Like a good lawyer, this guy wants definitions. He wants tight bounds and limits, telling him what's in and what's out. This lawyer wants to engage Jesus in a debate about the law. He wants the kind of philosophical conversation that might happen in a university tutorial, discussing the details of a theory or a framework. As long as the conversation is at that kind of level, intellectual and detached, then the lawyer is safe. But Jesus is not like a university professor. He refuses to engage the lawyer at that level. 
Jesus is a teacher for the people. And he answers with a parable, with a story. This story is far more subversive, far more confronting than any intellectual discussion. And it hits the lawyer right where he feels it, in the gap between what he knows and what he can do. So let's look at this story. It's a story lots of us will have heard before. Verse 30. There's a guy on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, two big cities at the time. It sounds like he's traveling alone on a road that's traditionally quite dangerous. Bands of robbers would prey on solo wanderers like this out in the wilderness. They had no defense. They had nowhere to run, nowhere to hear when they, no one to hear when they called for help. And that's exactly what happens. Robbers attack him, strip him, beat him, leave him half dead and alone on the road. So the scene is set. And on come our next characters. I'm going to call them religious leaders. There's two of them, first a priest and then a Levite encounter this beaten, bleeding, dying man on the road. Now you should know, these are the kind of men that our lawyer really respects. The priest and the Levite, they're not just experts in the law, they actually hold positions at the heart of the Jewish legal system at the temple. They are the upstanding moral figures of their day. They go further than anyone else around them in their strict and dedicated obedience to God's law. And they walk past a dying man on the road. They see him and they walk on the other side. We don't really know why the priests and the Levite don't help this guy. Some speculate that this is about ritual purity. If the man on the road is dead and they go over and touch him, they'll be ceremonially unclean. They'll have to go through lengthy rituals in order to be fit to perform their jobs at the temple. That's possible. The truth is we don't really know. And the simple fact is that the priest and the Levite simply do nothing. This is clearly a critique, isn't it? The two figures most known for their morality, their strict obedience to God, their detailed knowledge of what he requires of them in the law, these are the two people who walk past a dying man. It's hypocrisy, plain for everyone to see. Jesus is exposing the problems of a religion that claims to know what God wants, only to turn away when need is in front of their very eyes. When we stop and think about that, this is probably how a lot of people see the church and the leadership of the church in Australia today. Ministers of the church claiming to love the lost, to serve the poor and the needy, but turning a blind eye to abuse under their very noses. Jesus wants to expose that kind of hypocrisy here. He wants to confront the lawyer. He wants to challenge a religion that makes tight rules and definitions for righteousness, but that totally misses the heart of the law. And we haven't even got to the part of this story that packs the biggest punch yet. That comes with the third character. Who is that? Who's the third character? Someone tell me. The Samaritan. 
Well done. You've all heard this story before. You know that the next person to come along the road is a Samaritan. But I want us to try and hear this story like the lawyer, as if for the first time. Where does he think Jesus is going with this? So let me try an illustration here. Three men walk into a bar, an Englishman, a Scotsman, and an Irishman. Good, I tried this with Melanie, it didn't work. But <laughs> thankfully, uh, most of you have heard enough jokes like that to know that the third character is always an Irishman. They're always the butt of the joke. Now, I don't know anything about Middle Eastern jokes, but we do know that there were parables and stories like this one in first century Jewish culture. And after hearing this parable with a priest followed by a Levite, our lawyer is almost certainly expecting the next person to come down the road to be an everyday Jewish layman. You know, a normal Jew. Not from a priestly family, not associated with the temple, just your everyday guy. There were other stories like that. And after all, he knows that Jesus is a real critic of the religious leaders. So he's probably expecting that a normal Jewish guy is going to be the hero of the story so that Jesus can critique the religious leaders. That's what our lawyer's thinking. He expects an everyday Jewish person to walk down the road next. So what happens next is really like a mind explosion. It's a Samaritan, not a Jew, a Samaritan. A Samaritan sees the beaten man and has compassion on him. He does some basic first aid. He takes him to an inn. He pays for him to be taken care of, spends a night with him, and promises to cover any extra cost while the man gets better. The Samaritan is the hero of the story. Samaritans and Jews were mortal enemies. They used to be one people group, but they divided into two opposing kingdoms many centuries before the time of Jesus. The Samaritans said that the Jews and their Jewish temple in Jerusalem was illegitimate, and their priesthood was illegitimate, which is a really bad thing to say in those days. The Samaritans, uh, the, the Jews, sorry, said that the Samaritans were half-bloods, a mixed race, impure, defiled. Just a few verses ago in Luke, we heard two followers of Jesus, James and John, asking Jesus to call down fire from heaven on some Samaritans. They really hated each other. They both thought that the other was unclean. They wouldn't associate with each other. They wouldn't eat with each other. Just to illustrate the hatred here, about 20 years before the time of Jesus, a group of Samaritans scattered bones in the Jerusalem temple during Passover. Think of that as a kind of act of religious terrorism. The, the best modern comparison that I could think of, of this kind of hatred and acts of terrorism between two people that used to be one and the same, is probably the division between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland in the 70s, 80s, 90s. The levels of hatred that were there that's the kind of what we need to have in our minds as we hear this. Our lawyer would have been absolutely shocked. 
I wish we could have been there to see his reaction. If you look at verse 36, where Jesus says to the lawyer, which one was the neighbor to the man who got robbed? The lawyer can't even bring himself to admit that it was the Samaritan. He can't say the word Samaritan. He just says, the one who had mercy on him. So that's the parable of the compassionate Samaritan. It's a simple story that packs a punch. And I want to spend the rest of our time now really trying to draw out what this passage means for us. What does it mean for how we think about the communities around us here in the west of Melbourne? What does it mean for how our church loves people? What does it mean about who our neighbor is? There's just so much that could be said here. I really encourage you in your missional community groups this week to take some time to look at and talk about this passage more. But for now, three things that jump out. The first is that there are no boundaries in God's kingdom when it comes to loving our neighbor. In this parable, Jesus is breaking down the most extreme social division. Race, culture, class, status. Those things shouldn't determine who we show neighborly love to. That's a pretty radical message. Think about our lawyer. For him, for the Jewish world at the time, neighborhood as an idea was totally restricted to the nation of Israel. They just simply didn't have a category or concept of neighbor that could be applied to someone who wasn't an Israelite. And Jesus is exploding that. This is the love of God's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. It's boundless, unrestricted. This passage says loving our neighbor can't be contained to certain kinds or certain types of people. I think we all like that idea in principle, don't we? This is an appealing thing, so long as it remains idealized and abstract. But the point of this passage is that it's not about ideas, it's about actually doing it. Loving people who are completely different from us. All that makes the beaten man and the Samaritan neighbors is that one of them is in desperate need and the other one shows compassion. Our neighbor is simply the one we encounter who is vulnerable and desperate and in need. The second thing is that loving our neighbor is demonstrated in uncalculated and abundant acts of compassion. Remember the lawyer, he asks that question, who is my neighbor? Because he wants to put limits and borders around what's required of him. But the love that the Samaritan demonstrates in this story is uncalculated and abundant. He is so obviously not thinking about his moral obligations according to the law. He's so obviously not trying to do the minimum he can and then get out of there. No. His love is exaggerated. It's lavish. 
He even says to the innkeeper he'll come back and pay any extra expense required. There's great potential for extortion there. But he opens himself to it willingly. That's the model that Jesus gives us of neighborly love. An uncalculated and abundant response to the needs that we encounter. Not minimal obedience. Willing, extravagant love, more than could ever be required or expected. But let's be real about what this kind of love meant for the Samaritan and what it might mean for us. It's time-consuming. It's expensive. It costs money. It's work-delaying. It is inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. To be honest, it's hard. How could I possibly be capable of this kind of love? I wonder if that's what the lawyer thought when Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. How? How could I? Well, the third and final point for this morning, that loving this way is the willing response of those who've received an even greater love. You see, if we look at this passage like the lawyer, all that we can see is defeat and failure. Jesus is setting a standard in this story that just seems impossible to meet. Our lawyer wants rules to keep in order to merit eternal life. But this extravagant love for neighbor that Jesus described is not a standard that can be met through rule keeping. Really, Jesus is telling this lawyer that eternal life is not a matter of keeping the rules at all. He isn't commanding some sort of new extreme system of legalism, the next level up. No, the exact opposite. I wonder if you noticed the subtle reversal that Jesus works on this lawyer in the passage. The lawyer asks him, who is my neighbor? But after telling the parable, Jesus asks the lawyer, who has been a neighbor to you? Not who is my neighbor, but who has been a neighbor to you? It's subtle, but it's profound. Jesus isn't guilting the lawyer to go and do something because it's the law. No, he's saying, if you had experienced neighborly love like that dying man on the road, you would go and do the same for others. You would be transformed. The love of God's kingdom is a love that flows willingly from a heart that's been transformed. And at the end of the day, for us... In sin, we all faced a future far worse than this half-dead man on the road. And at the cross, we've received a love that's abundant beyond measure. If we want to be a community that's characterized by this kind of love, we've got to absolutely steep ourselves in the uncalculated, abundant love that God has shown to us in Christ. That's the only way. It can't be done through legalism. It can't be done through planning. It can't be done through a system. It can't be done through rule keeping. 
1 John chapter 4. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because he first loved us. That's the way of the gospel. We've got to talk about that to each other more. We've got to remind each other of that every day. And as we learn that love more deeply in our minds and our hearts, our response will be the willing compassion of the Samaritan. When we've experienced true compassion, our hearts will be naturally oriented to grace and mercy. And equally, finish with the challenge of this passage, that when we ignore the poor, we show that we've not understood or experienced our own poverty apart from Christ. Go and do likewise, says Jesus. Go and do likewise. Let me pray. Father, we're just grateful beyond measure for the love that you've shown us in Christ. That at the cross you've taken our sin and dealt with it once for all. Restored us to you, to one another, to life as you intended it to be lived. And we ask that you'd help that love to flow more deeply into our community, into our hearts and our minds. So that we might show the kind of abundant and uncalculated compassion that the Samaritan shows on the road. Help us to be a community that loves our neighbor really in practice. Help us to go and do likewise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.